0: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Aya Homei about her book, Science for Governing Japan's Population, out from Cambridge University Press in 2022. Homei's book examines the science and policy of population in Japan from the 1860s to the 1960s. As in other modern nation states and empires, Population has been, in Japan, an index of national strength, and a preoccupation of specialists and policymakers alike. The book tackles the origins and changes of this interest in Japan over time, and the mutual dependence of the development of population as an object of knowledge and management for the state, on the one hand, and scientific community, on the other, and also looks at the symbiosis between the two. Science for Governing shows that population science was shaped by the shifting imperatives and ideologies of the state and the socio-political and economic conditions in which knowledge was produced. All right, Dr. Home, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us um, and for uh, arranging the uh, schedule here so that we could meet while you're in Japan and I'm here in Europe. Um, so we're going to be talking uh, today about your book, "Science for Governing Japan's Population," um, and the book uh, examines the role of science in Japanese efforts to manage the population. Um, it's really that century, from the 1860s to the 1960s, right? And the and, and you have this um, analysis of the intertwined agendas of scientists, of politicians. Um, bureaucrat scientists, which I thought was a really interesting term, and maybe we can unpack that over the course of the podcast, Um, and the the symbiosis of population science, and what you call, quote, state sovereignty predicated on population management. So obviously, this is a very complex relationship that you uh, unpick over the book, not least because at some times a large population is you know national strength, racial power. Other times it's overpopulation, destabilizing, causing poverty, et cetera. So can you tell us um, about the three big frameworks that you're using to do this analysis, uh, which I just want to lay out here? So you talk about the quantitative of social facts, the co-production of natural and social orders, um, and then micropolitics.
1: Excellent. Thanks. Um, Thanks, Nathan. Well, actually, thank you for accommodating myself, you know, my time um, here. Um, Yeah, it's really lovely to be in Kyoto, um, although I'm normally based in Manchester. Um, I'm not going to say which one is um, better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I just not, I'm going to refrain from that. Um, it's not a bad
0: time of year to be in Kyoto, though, I'm sure.
1: It is an excellent time to be in Kyoto, actually. Um, yeah, so um, so as you said, so for the book, um, so I examine different scientific fields, disciplines, or practices, um, you know, that were established from the 1860s, so, you know, roughly corresponding with, you know, Meiji as Japan transformed from a feudal country to a modern state, right? So so I did arrange chapters chronologically, um, but each chapter deals with a, um, well, actually, a a different medical scientific field or a practice so readers can, you know, jump in and only read the chapters they think are relevant for them. Um, But the book as a whole, as you say, deal with what I call Asymbiotic symbiotic relationship between the kind of formation of um, population scientists, sorry, population science, sciences broadly conceived, and um, the in the formation of Japan as a modern sovereign nation state and an empire, right, which was predicated um, on on population management. Um, And for that, I use these three frameworks you just uh, explained. So the quantification of social facts, um, the co-production of natural and social orders um, and the micropolitics. so I must say, uh, from the um, you know from the beginning, that these frameworks have uh, actually existed for a long time um, in the field of um, science and technology studies, or sometimes they call it well, they, they do often call it SDS. Or and uh, in the history of science, uh, technology, and medicine, I'm um, you know familiar with. Um, I was trained in. So for that reason, um, in the introduction, I actually encourage uh, readers to skip the relevant section if they are familiar with the frameworks. Um, but uh, I, I am uh, very aware that, um, and I want to reach out uh, uh, to a you know a, a very important target group um, for this you know book is. Uh, actually, you know, a group of students and scholars of Japanese studies um, who might not be familiar with these frameworks. So uh, I spent some pages explaining um, how I use these frameworks, um, actually in the introduction. So the um, quantification of social facts is originally a a, a sociological framework um, scholars use to uncover um, social structures and Dynamisms that are inscribed in the ways in which um, facts are presented in numbers, and to see how the specific ways facts are presented um, shape our actions or, you know, perspective on things and, and phenomena. Um, so, um, so, when I adopted this framework, I used it in a similar way that a um, historian of modern China, Ton Lam, uh, did in, in their study of um, national census um, taken in the Republican era. Um, so, which shows how um, the, the, the knowledge production accompanying the national census um, uh, uh, fundamentally transformed the nature of governance. Uh, by making the complex human world appear to be knowable and manipulable in ways that were not possible before. I just quoted um, uh, Sarton Tom Lamb's um, words now here. So you can see how uh, Lamb's use of the quantification of social facts um, focuses on modern governance, um, and I thought this was a, a very useful lens through which to seize the interactions or, um, you know, the symbiosis, I called it, um, between the making of population science um, that represents um, facts and population facts in numbers and the transformation of Japan into a modern sovereignty in the in the major period on, and onwards and how the symbiosis um, normalised the narrative of Japanese population as a, as a political subject that was essential for the making of Japan as a, as a modern state and an empire. So, but then I thought um, the quantifications of social facts itself doesn't really fully capture um, the power inscribed in, the, in this symbiosis. Um, so specifically, for instance, um, this symbiosis was based on um, this hi- hierarchical power structures between the Japanese state tried to maintain itself through population management and the people whose bodies and lives um, uh, became subject of state intervention under, under the, you know, under the name of population management. And so, 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 you know, I wanted to capture that, right, the, the, the capture, um, the role of science in producing and consolidating these power structures. So I use the notion of co-production. So this is the second um, framework I use. Um, so, so the co-production of natural and social orders, uh, as the naming suggests, um, insists on the uh, kind of inseparable nature of how, we make sense of the natural um, through science uh, and the social through, let's say, you know, daily lives in that it's all part of how we make sense of the world. So specifically for this book, um, I use the framework to really dig deeper into um, power that pivoted the symbiosis um, and, and what power this symbiosis produced. And so, in the book, uh, I make two points um, based on this um, the, this incorporation, uh, uh, you know, it's this framework. Um, so, the first is that um, the, the the knowledge uh, about the naturalized concept of population, which was actually constructed through policy relevant academic research or scientific research, was co produced with vectors that consolidated existing social orders. So the, and then the second point is that um, population science is co-produced with the consolidation of state power in order to uh, intervene in people's lives via policymaking. Then, but then again, um, the danger in this co-production framework is that it often is too neat. Um, That It portrays the the co-production as a kind of smooth interplay between natural and social orders and, um, you know, between um, uh, statecraft and science. So to make it a a bit more nuanced, um, I incorporated this third framework, micropolitics, um, to see um, exactly what the historical actors did in their daily lives and what concerns they had, which shaped their scientific or policymaking efforts. So I think micropolitics did two things for me. So the first is it allowed me to present stories in the ways that um, disrupts this narrative of smooth co-production, like I said earlier. And, and second, it was that um, it urged me to focus on kind of material um, and or uh, kind of locally grounded institutional conditions that were really important in, in shaping the, the realities of doing science, actually doing, right, and policymaking that get dropped if we incorporate too much on power. So that's why I incorporated these, these three frameworks. And then I hope, I hope, you know, taking these three frameworks, um, kind of allowed me to, um, kind of give a nuanced, um, story.
0: Well, and I appreciate uh, this about both the book and the way you've explained this. That because you're trying to reach out to different audiences, um, you know, it's not not many authors say, yeah, you know, don't read this section of my book if you know what I'm talking about. But it, it is it is an approach that works. Um, in and I thought it was actually quite um, useful for me in thinking about how to talk across disciplines, right? To say, well, look, here's something that people over here need to know. Here are things that people over here need to know. Uh, and I thought that was a, a it, it probably speaks to the, the sort of longer term um, difficulties we have uh, communicating across disciplines. And it and seem to me like you, you might have experienced that frustration at some point or another um, and been working with that. So I, I want to uh, sort of divide the book roughly in half uh, here and talk about the first half of the book. So chapters uh, one to three, more or less as a unit. Um, and this is uh, the period roughly up to uh, the the real escalation of, of war for Japan um, in the 1930s. Uh, so it's it, again, it's covering a long period of time from the 1860s into the late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, but this first half of the book, um, is where you show how population science became embedded in the theory uh, and the practice of government, uh, both in the colonies uh, and in the metropole, uh, certainly by the late 1920s Um, so i wonder if you could tell us what was the attraction of population science specifically for japan i think you've, you've you know already outlined some of the reasons that more generally uh modern nation states have an interest in uh the quantification of social facts which includes uh questions about population but also um tell us about how specifically uh uh population science becomes institutionalized as a policy-making priority and a focus of Japan's scientific community uh, in that period that we're dealing with from the 1860s to the, to the 1920s, 1930s.
1: Okay, great. Uh, so thanks. So so just, just to explain a, a, a little bit more in detail. So for chapter one, I looked at the establishment of population statistics uh, in the Meiji period. Uh, in in particular, the area that was linked to national census uh, and then chapter two was about vital statistics um, you know like mortality and birth rates et etc, and how the development of that uh, as a tool of public health was linked to the development of midwives as a healthcare professional group that was reserved for for women and then finally chapter three was about the rise of the discourse of Population problems, or right, jinko mondai, and how it became a policy agenda in the 1920s, and and so for the chapter, I mainly focused on um, social scientists and um, you know economists, um, sociologists, and also medical researchers who wrestle with these various different population issues. So so these are the these are the first half, uh, as you call it. So the question uh, of the attraction uh, of, of population science for Japanese authorities. So so I, I, I suppose, so to start with, um, I, I, what I wanted to show, particularly in chapter one, was that the attraction of population science wasn't instantaneously obvious to the government, right? So what I mean is that... Um, Uh, So the established narrative, uh, so in the history of science, technology, medicine in modern Japan is that, you know, Meiji nation building and empire building marked a watershed moment uh, in history. Right. Whereby the government endorsed Western derived modern science and technology, because many political leaders uh, thought that those science and technologies were essential to build a rich nation with strong Army, right, etc. Right, that was, you know, that was durable enough to evade the waves of Western um, imperialism. So. So obviously that 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 the mass narrative, you know, there's some some you know grain of truth in there. But what I wanted to tell the reader um, with the story of population science uh, statistics um, is that is that it wasn't always the case. Um, so just to give you an example from chapter one, um, in the 1870s, uh, the government officials weren't actually in, interested <laughs> actually in taking up population scientists' argument that the nationwide census based on this cutting edge method of, you know, from Western Europe was necessary. So they thought, well, actually, we have population registers from the uh, previous period, you know, we've got, um, so they were called uh, uh, ninbets Aratamecho or Shumon Aratamecho. So you know they thought we've got them, <laughs> so so that'll be enough. Um, you know, if the government of um, you know government office uh, created a population register system based on that, you know, instead of implementing uh, a completely new method uh, or system from Western Europe, which would be much more costly, um, right? So there were all sorts of things were going on at the beginning of the Meiji period, and and so so you know, it seems like this was, this this seemed to be a pragmatic solution on, on the part of the government. So for much of the 1870s, and even into the 1880s, um, the government officials pretty much ignore the argument presented by the first generation of statistic experts, right? And so in the face of that, um, you know, those first generation of statisticians, um, you know, who thought that who was you know were really convinced that census was necessary, they they, they had to they, they really felt compa- you know like compelled or they had to really campaign for it. So so they argued that the census was a tool of civilization and also they were trying to influence policy through you know, using personal connections, etc. So this is what they did, but actually ironically, in the end, the impetus for national census didn't come from them, their campaign. Obviously, maybe it did, it did um, might have actually played a little part, but actually um, mostly uh, what worked was the external pressure. <laughs> so, so this scenario, you know, might be actually familiar, right, with some you know, scholars and students uh, uh, studying other Japan-related topics, but here it is, it was the case in the in the Meiji period. Um, too. So, so that's, that's one of the points I wanted to come across in the book. Um, and, and the first point I wanted to stress, you know, I want to stress here was that, you know, the attraction wasn't always there. Well, having said that, obviously, uh, as you read the book, so you know, the, 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 the government um, did ultimately take up statistics and statistical thinking and use those for understanding people and, and for policy making. So, for instance, in chapter two, um, I show how the statistical thinking created um, the infant as a statistical category, right, from the 1890s onwards, and that, in a way, um, that um, kind of went in tandem with the emergence of the infant as a as a social group that the that the government thought needed intervention, right. Um, uh, and and how in turn this this collection of statistical data uh, about the infant, let's say infant mortality rates, helped the creation of social policies that aimed to promote maternal and infant health in the 1920s. And then that was enmeshed in, with a process to um, kind of professionalize midwifery as a as a female healthcare profession. That that was dedicated to maternal and infant health around that period. So I, so by extension, uh, chapter three examines how not only specific problems, problems of, let's say, infant mortality, but the population itself, right, a very abstract um, concept, but, but, but the population and the trend of population uh, became problematized in the 1920s. Uh, as the term "jinko mondai, or the population problem, joined in the Japanese uh, lexicon uh, around the time, and how that was tied to the policy discussion that then led to the um, establishment of the first official body to inquire into the population problem, so investigative commission for population and food problems. So that was established in 1927. So... So by then, um, of course, the government officials uh, were particularly attracted to population sciences uh, because they presented a view of the society clearly in numbers, in ways that made sense to them. Right. So, of course, behind this government appreciation um, of the population represented in numbers is the understanding that, that, that these numbers actually do tell a story. Right, uh, 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 uh and the story is is about where the boundaries of the japanese start and end and you know where uh, that and that the change in the population numbers or the population trend as as it's called right actually shows something about the nations um you know wealth and health and wealth, uh, right? So either it um, indicates a problem or prosperity or whatever else. Uh, Population scientists promised that they couldn't um, only diagnose, not only diagnose the current trend, uh, but also predict future based on the current trend. So that kind of promise uh, was one of the reasons why the government was attracted to population science. Because it made the government prepare for the unknown future, right? So at least gave the gave the sense that they they were you know they were able to with those numbers. So that kind of thinking was behind the government's appreciation of population science. I I argued, right? and and I also argued that um, that this way of thinking itself was not always there, or self evident or just. Emerged naturally as a result of Meiji modernization, uh, but it actually involved active campaigning uh, on the part of population scientists. You know, so they to, to sell the attraction of the uh, of the statistical thinking uh, for the government and and, um, but but then as I told you earlier, the campaigning was not always smooth. <laughs> Yeah, and, and
0: I, one of the things that's sort of interesting to me about this half of the book is that the exact narrative that you've just sort of wound up with there, where you have the um, experts uh, sort of lobbying for their discipline as both a way to understand. Uh, history and the, the the present and sort of how how we get there but also to predict the future is you know we see this over and over in all sorts of different situations right whether it 's seismologists who are you you know, talking about earthquake prediction in Japan or whether it's, you know, American economists talking about predicting the economic future and here's how much we have to raise interest rates, lower interest rates, you know, central bankers. So this is very much the story of um, modern social and natural sciences um, and their interaction with the state. And I thought it was really interesting how you've sort of, you know, done that writ large story through this uh, uh, case study here um, in Japan. However, you know, it seems to me that the the story takes a little bit of a turn uh, when you get into uh, wartime, right? And obviously, it's not a complete disconnect, uh, but that the exigencies of war uh, make a difference. And you begin to talk about this in uh, chapter four, uh, where you say, uh, war made population studies into a policy science. Um, so I wonder if you could unpack that as a start to sort of get us into this chapter and talk about how the state mobilized population studies and population science then in the war effort. Yeah,
1: See. it seems like this one is the, um, yeah, this one seems too neat right the (laughs) co-production yeah so 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 when i said uh war made population studies into a policy science um what i meant was that the scientific activities or scientific discourses or 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 scientific campaigning to problematize population for the policy um in a way became fruitful um so these scientific actions did materialize into tangible Policy measures during the wartime, um, or because of the war. Um, so I also meant um, the, you know, by by that by that statement. Um, refer to the institutionalization of population studies as a scientific field accountable uh, for government policies and and specifically I had in mind uh, was the establishment of the Institute of Population Problems within the Ministry of Health and Welfare in, in 1939. So, so in chapter three, uh, so so in chapter three, um, I did detail quite a lot about how scientists, and social scientists, and medical figures um, who were really fueled by eugenics um, were really trying to implement population policies, and I did say that it, it led to the establishment of that investigative commission uh, for population and uh, food problems in 1927. But this was a a government inquiry body. And even though I have to to, uh, uh, stress that it was a very important uh, body. It was the first um, that was specialized in studying studying population issues. But but, but to be honest, the, the commission's activities didn't really lead to a policy. But in that chapter, chapter four, we're talking here, uh, about here uh, i showed how you know the, um, the, the the proposals made by those population experts in the commission in the 1920s um, some of them were and, and, and many of the crucial ones were materialized into actual policy measures be it eugenic policy or pronatalist policy so uh, another dimension uh, was that the the government at war provided an uh, an institutional basis for the study of population be, uh, populations, and and that was because of the war. So the the, the Institute of Population Problems, I think, um, is is an exemplary case, right? Um, that is you know relevant here. So. Um, So just to explain how the war led to the institutionalization of population studies, Um, so, you know, as Japan entered war with China uh, in 1937, um, you know, initially uh, political leaders actually didn't think it would become a prolonged war. Well, I think, you know, if you are, uh, you know, students and scholars of Japanese, um, you know, um, history, that's, that's kind of like a, um, quite a basic knowledge, but you know, so they they didn't think at the beginning it was it wasn't going to be a a long drawn war, but from around mid nineteen thirty eight, when political leaders became aware that this could be actually a long drawn war, um, population scientists at that time uh, also began to notice and became worried that the fertility rate and particularly in the countryside was getting lower, so. Up till then, when the government and population scientists talk about, you know, Jinkgo monday and population problems, um, specifically when it came to population quantity, what they were referring to primarily was the issues of population growth or, or the, you know, or so-called population surplus or overpopulation. So, so you know, they, they were worried about mass unemployment, political disorder, um, or food shortage, you know um uh, could be brought about by this ever growing population now in the late 1930s um japan was at war and when the government started to portray people as human resource or you know jinteki shigen i i really i really didn't know how to yeah um translate that but um properly because obviously human resource it, it just has a different connotation. Um, but in any way, so, uh, so the government then, uh, you know, mobilized people as much as material resources under the, you know, national um, general mobilization law. Government officials and population scientists, you know, experts notice this falling birth rates in the countryside, you know, where supporters of agrarianism, you know, romanticize as they the source of national power, you know. So the government rightly became worried and argued that something needed to be done with it. Uh, and to make sure that they were making effective policy measures, the government then set up this institute right, of population problems. Um, and so under the government support, population studies then really thrived during wartime. Um, so I have to... Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think that's fine. I I wanted to say this. Um, yeah, that's fine. Well, we'll skip that. Okay.
0: There. Yeah. So um, we. So this this takes us sort of to the uh, the beginnings of the post-war period, which is what uh, occupies the final two uh, chapters, um, the, the and the conclusion. Um, so what was <sighs> What's, you know, again, thinking about the sort of uh, uh, the continuities and discontinuities in the way that population um, is viewed uh, in the scientific and policymaking uh, communities uh, was was really one of the, you know, I mean, it's it's in many ways the big through line here. Um, And the population uh, management priorities in the post-war, you know, uh, include... Um, not just population control. Uh, Japan, again, you know, now after the war, limited resources, et cetera, et cetera. So you're sort of back to that. Um, I did that pre-war, uh, you know, up to the 1920s kind of model of how do we control the population with so that we can live with limited resources, um, but also this added sort of Orwellian term you have here, population quality. Um, so to what extent am I reading this correctly? To see uh, this as a return to the twenties and the thirties, uh, what's different and how? And in particular, sort of how does this idea of population quality figure into that picture?
1: Thank you. So, so you know, I think this is an an excellent question because actually. Um, you know I didn't actually think of my post-war stories in terms of return to the 1920s and 1930s right I I did think about you know continuities and discontinuity but whether that is a, a return or not is is you know something I, yeah um, so I wasn't I wasn't thinking in that term so yeah I think I'll definitely Think about that question and trying to come up with my response in the in the research i'm conducting currently on on involuntary sterilization in in post-war war japan um, but in anyway i uh, saw so, so this orwellian as you as you call it the orwellian concept of population quality is actually um, it, it is a jargon <laughs> so you know it's 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 kind of um it is kind of um, interesting, isn't it? So, um, And it, it is quite all-encompassing, you know, what what is actually population quality? And it does actually change meanings and, and reference depends on who's actually talking about population quality. Um, so, but anyway, so getting back to the book, um, so chapter five and chapter six are about the post-war birth control policy um, or the state-initiated or state-endorsed uh, you know, uh, birth control campaign and popularized the idea of, and practice of contraception in the face of growing abortion rates. Um, so the government tried to spread the idea of modern contraception as a countermeasure to this right, rising rate of abortion, uh, which was then was characterized as, as backward. Um, So I I just mentioned um, that the the government was worried about the falling birth rates during the war. Um, And in fact, they did take up a super pronatalist policy in the early 1940s. So if you look at the wartime policy and compare that to the post-war policy, uh, in terms of policy measures to manage the population size, so to, to... to actually make it shrink, uh, it really does seem as if the government took a complete, like, opposite measure, right? Complete one hundred eighty degree turn. So, um, so the government then, you know, adopted basically, a, 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 yeah. But um, so, yeah, if you do focus on population quantity, um, the government did make a complete turn, right? 118 degree term, but when you look at the the government's response to the questions of population quality, um, you know they were quite consistent um, at controlling reproductive lives of the people who were deemed unfit. Um, I'm I'm using I'm using the term that was used back then, right? Um, so obviously, you know. To call it, to call people unfit, and and not really, um, you know, acceptable um, today. Um, So yeah, or 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 call them um, kind of fit that their biological traits were inferior. So that was that was also called. uh, So this is why the government issued the Eugenic Protection Law in 1948, um, which was. Uh, similar to the national eugenics law um, that was that the government issued during the wartime in 1940. Um, but in, in fact, um, as historian of science, and my, my dear colleague here, uh, Aritsumeikan, uh, Professor uh, Yoko Matsubara, has argued when it comes to, um, let's say, involuntary sterilization policy or, um, or you know, um, the, the post-war eugenic law was actually more expansive in scope, um, in that a wider pool of people could be subject to involuntary sterilization compared to the wartime eugenic law. So, I guess uh, I guess for people who know um, the post-war Japanese history uh, on a popular level, might find this actually very surprising, right? Because the Japan is, you know, kind of conventionally described uh, as a time of, you know, um, you know, democratization, freedom, right? So, so, so this draconian measure, um, yeah, right, so it's strictly uh, aimed to control the reproductive bodies of the people with so-called inferior traits. Right? It seems quite contrary to the to the story of post-war Japan, but it, but it happened. So, so this was certainly not necessarily a turn to the 1920s or, or might, might not be right? Um, uh, a turn to the 20s or 30s, but in fact, this was a concern that was quite consistent, actually, since the 1910s, right? And, and unfortunately, um, I have to point out that this eugenic measure continued um, to exist until 1996, um, until the eugenic protection law was renamed as the maternal protection law um, so here here what i wanted to add so um so this is this isn't closer to what i do now but um what i wanted to add uh, which is something i didn't uh, what i want to add here today which is uh, something i didn't um elaborate um in the book but really want to do um you know whenever i have a chance is that um, you know uh, while on the one hand, um, under the nave of birth control or family planning, um, which I, you know, which I spent quite a, a lot of, you know, long, long time researching about and, and wrote, you know, two chapters for this book. Um, so, so the government tried to promote a modern idea of planning a family, as it were, um, through modern contraceptive technologies. But this this mode of like modern and rational family planning, which was actually promoted on the national level through corporations such as you know, Japan Railways, right, um, was primarily targeted at the people, um, you know, married men and women who were um, who were as it were, you know, fit to into into the into the government discourse of post war reconstruction right? So those who were able, so those able bodies, right? So they were able to um, take part in the productive economic activities, right? Through their work, um, if they're men and, you know, if they're women, through their reproductive work of childbirth and childbearing. But behind the, you know, behind that was this draconian eugenic measure that aimed to suppress the reproduction of those who were deemed unfit for the post-war reconstruction, right? So, and many of them were discouraged from taking part in the productive, even productive activities, right? So by way of isolations or, you know, a lot of Hansen's disease um, patients were isolated from the rest of the uh, communities, right? Um, And they were institutionalized, right? Right. so, so these these things were happening at the same time. Um, so, th- th- so this point is something uh, I certainly, um, you know, I didn't, I, I don't think I actually unpack quite well in the book, but certainly want to, um, you know, tell uh, from now on, you know, in the future, yeah.
0: <laughs> Right. And so you've um, started to to think uh, a little bit about, you know, you started to talk a little bit about your uh, current and upcoming research. And I want to circle back around to that in a second. But um, another thing that you uh, dropped in there, which I think is worth pulling out for our audience is the eugenics law in Japan um, is only repealed in 1996. And for some perspective, uh, that's the year that I went there as a student for the first time, right? So, I mean, this is you know, it's roughly a half a lifetime ago, which is long in some perspectives, but that's that's not that long ago. Um, and I think it's it, it it does surprise people when they when they realize that. Um, so. I, and This this gets us, you know, with your uh, current and, and future research, which I'd love if you could uh, expand on just a little bit for us as we wrap up here. Um, it's also related to some of the things that you're talking about in the conclusion, um, which is the sort of where are we now problem. Um, so your book, you know, roughly the, the sort of heart of the book goes up to the 60s. Um, and it's pretty widely known, though, that in Japan is the oldest, fastest aging society on the planet, probably. Um, And this obviously has enormous implications for the science and the policy of population Uh, in some ways to sort of uh, continue the conversation we were having earlier, um, you know, very much in the Japanese media um, and to some extent policy circles these days, we're sort of returning to that idea of um, population as power, Uh, but more the idea that population as power is the thing we stand to lose. Right, not the thing that we are building up, but the thing that we are losing, and so this is a, a real sort of moment of crisis. Um, and I'm assuming that uh, your current work uh, intersects with that. So I'd love if you could sort of take us transitioning from the conclusion of the book into your current work.
1: Okay, so I might I might actually repeat myself, but um, so yeah, where where are we now? So yeah, of course, Japan is um, you know the the oldest and fastest aging society in the world. Um, so so other aging societies are. Uh, uh, you know, the, the policymakers they're really watching um, keenly what the Japanese government is trying to do. So, so in this sense, um, for the scientists and policymakers involved in population policies, they by the way they don't like to call um, anything population policies because of the tainted, you know, obviously history with it, uh, which I describe in the book. Um, so, but. You know those who are involved in kind of population-related issues. Um, you know, Japan is an experimental ground, as it were, right? So, and um, so, so responding to the the call, so so Japan, um, so since the kind of two thousand. Uh, I would say it's 2010s or so. Responding to this call for active aging, um, was actually proposed initially by the United Nations bodies already like at the turn of the you know 21st century. So the Japanese government too is trying to uh, come up with like policy measures that enable active aging, um, and you know population specialists in these fields, you know such as gerontology or you know economy. Um, they're being assured by the government um, to act as policy advisors so so for sure that keeps them at least you know some of these um, population experts really busy um, but but as a as a historian looking at the topic, um, you know I can't help noticing this persistence of the discourse of population and population people lives, that is predicated on this notion of productivity, right? Um, in, in this, you know, uh, this what's packaged as an emerging population problem of aging and low fertility. So, of course, you know, aging, aging, and, and uh, low fertility are always kind of presented as a set. So, so what I mean by that is that the persistence of the specific discourse of economic productivity that insists that people's lives were supposed to be directly linked to national prosperity, whereby um, uh, people who are able to contribute productively in this way are, you know, hailed as heroes, whereas um, people who contribute to the society in an alternative way or, or not in the way that is, you know, directly beneficial or contributable to the, you know, GDP, uh, but in the way that makes others happy or, you know, by creating something that make people happy or simply just being there, you know, so these people are discriminated against. And so if you put the Japanese policy, uh, that promotes active aging. You can see that discourse straight away, you know, because you know, so the undergirding idea that um, supports this government policy is that you know, active aging can help solve the problem of shrinking labor market, right? Um, which is you know brought about by the low fertility rate. So, so, so I, so I argue with this book that the the fundamental premise uh, or assumption about a population and the govern, governing body that pivots the, the 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 policy discussion on aging population today has a has a long history uh, and and it still is very much present so um so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very comfortable place to be in if you are an able body or if you are part of the majority or mainstream. But if you don't fit into the mainstream, it's, it's actually tough. Right? So I think it's, it's, you know, it's really about time that this kind of ableist rationale pivots both the population science and the government policy on population was revised. So another thing I want to highlight as well is that the the fact that um, population science is um, turning into a policy science actually might not necessarily be a happy ending story for the scientists themselves. Um, so to start with, um, so it, it is difficult. Well, actually, you know, it is difficult um, as, as, as my colleagues, you know, um, in, in population science, uh, you know, Demographers um, say it is actually difficult to establish, um, let's say, an academic department specifically on demographic studies, um, in part because it is a policy science. So, you know, so there is a a government institution that is specialized in in population policies uh, in Japan still today. So the Institute of Population uh, Problems still exists under a different name, but still it does exist. And apparently that makes it somewhat difficult for specialists to convince the university, you know, their university, to create an academic department for, for, for demography. So, so many, you know, universities do not see the point of establishing an institute or an academic department, but the government actually spends budget, you know, this kind of allocates budget budget uh, on the existing, you know, population research think tank, right? So their own think tank, so, so obviously, as as a historian, I'm very bad at coming up with projection, unlike my fellow, you know, colleagues in in population sciences. But I, I'm hoping that this, you know, symbiosis story I, I I talked about in in the book will help readers to reflect on the past, and and that that will lead to the creation of more, I suppose, inclusive policies um in, in the future. So that's my wish (laughs) yeah great
0: well uh and hopefully we will have a chance to get you back on the podcast to talk about some of that work uh in the future uh once the future has become the past and we as historians feel comfortable talking about uh, it (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, but until then i just wanted to thank you for uh taking the time to talk with me today uh and uh wish you well take care
1: thank you thank you so much for having me